Chapter 4, Parts 1 and 2 of War in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. War in the Air by H. G. Wells. Chapter 4, Parts 1 and 2. Chapter 4 the German Air Fleet, Part 1. Of all the production of the human imagination that make the world in which Mr. Bert Smallways lived confusingly wonderful, there was none quite so strange, so headlong and disturbing, so noisy and persuasive and dangerous, as the modernizations of patriotism produced by imperial and international politics. In the soul of all men is a liking for kind, a pride in one's own atmosphere, a tenderness for one's mother's speech and one's familiar land. Before the coming of the scientific age, this group of gentle and noble emotions had been a fine factor in the equipment of every worthy human being, a fine factor that had its less amiable aspect in a usually harmless hostility to strange people, and a usually harmless detraction of strange lands. But with the wild rush of change in the pace, scope, materials, scale, and possibilities of human life that then occurred, the old boundaries, the old seclusions, and separations were violently broken down. All the old settled mental habits and traditions of men found themselves not simply confronted by new conditions, but by constantly renewed and changing new conditions. They had no chance of adapting themselves. They were annihilated, or perverted, or inflamed beyond recognition. Bert Smallway's grandfather, in the days when Bun Hill was a village under the sway of Sir Peter Bone's parent, had known his place to the othermost farthing, touched his hat to his betters, despised and condescended to his inferiors, and hadn't changed an idea from the cradle to the grave. He was Kentish and English, and that meant hops, beer, dog roses, and the sort of sunshine that was best in the world. Newspapers and politics and visits to London weren't for the likes of him. Then came the change. These earlier chapters have given an idea of what happened to Bun Hill, and how the flood of novel things had poured over its devoted rusticity. Bert Smallways was only one of countless millions in Europe and America and Asia who, instead of being born rooted in the soil, were born struggling in a torrent they never clearly understood. All the faiths of their fathers had been taken by surprise and startled into the strangest forms and reactions. Particularly did the fine old tradition of patriotism get perverted and distorted in the rush of the new times. Instead of the sturdy establishment in prejudice of Bert's grandfather, to whom the word Frenchified was the ultimate term of contempt, there flowed through Bert's brain a squittering succession of thinly violent ideas about German competition about the yellow danger, about the black peril, about the white man's burthen, that is to say, Bert's preposterous right to muddle further the naturally very muddled politics of the entirely similar little cads to himself, except for a smear of brown, who smoked cigarettes and rode bicycles in Buluwayo, Kingston, Jamaica, or Bombay. These were Bert's subject races, and he was ready to die by proxy in the person of any one who cared to enlist, to maintain his hold upon that right, 
It kept him awake at nights to think that he might lose it. The essential fact of the politics of the age in which Bert Smallways lived, the age that blundered at last into the catastrophe of the war in the air, was a very simple one, if only people had had the intelligence to be simple about it. The development of science had altered the scale of human affairs. By means of rapid mechanical traction, it had brought men nearer together, so much nearer socially, economically, physically, that the old separations into nations and kingdoms were no longer possible. A newer, wider synthesis was not only needed, but imperatively demanded. Just as the once independent dukedoms of France had to fuse into a nation, so now the nations had to adapt themselves to a wider coalescence. They had to keep what was precious and possible, and concede what was obsolete and dangerous. A saner world would have perceived this patent need for a reasonable synthesis, would have discussed it temperately, achieved and gone on to organize the great civilization that was manifestly possible to mankind. The world of Bert Smallways did nothing of the sort. Its national governments, its national interests, would not hear of anything so obvious. They were too suspicious of each other, too wanting in generous imaginations. They began to behave like ill-bred people in a crowded public car, to squeeze against one another, elbow, thrust, dispute, and quarrel. Vain to point out to them that they had only to rearrange themselves to be comfortable. Everywhere, all over the world, the historian of the early twentieth century finds the same thing. The flow and rearrangement of human affairs inextricably entangled by the old areas, the old prejudices, and a sort of heated irascible stupidity. And everywhere, congested nations in inconvenient areas, slopping population and produce into each other, annoying each other with tariffs, and every possible commercial vexation, and threatening each other with navies and armies that grew every year more portentous. It is impossible now to estimate how much of the intellectual and physical energy of the world was wasted in military preparation and equipment, but it was an enormous proportion. Great Britain spent upon army and navy money and capacity that directed into the channels of physical culture and education would have made the British the aristocracy of the world. Her rulers could have kept the whole population learning and exercising up to the age of 18 and made a broad-chested and intelligent man of every Bert Smallways in the islands had they given the resources they spent in the war materials to the making of men instead of which they waggled flags at him until he was fourteen, incited him to cheer, and then turned him out of school to begin that career of private enterprise we have compactly recorded. France achieved similar imbecilities. Germany was, if possible, worse. Russia, under the waste and stresses of militarism, festered towards bankruptcy and decay. All Europe was producing big guns and countless swarms of little small ways. The Asiatic peoples had been forced in self-defense into a like diversion of the new powers science had brought them. On the eve of the outbreak of the war, there were six great powers in the world, and a cluster of smaller ones, each armed to the teeth and straining every nerve to get ahead of the others in deadliness of equipment and military efficiency. The great powers were first the United States, a nation addicted to commerce, 
but roused to military necessities by the efforts of Germany to expand into South America, and by the natural consequences of her own unwary annexations of land in the very teeth of Japan. She maintained two immense fleets, east and west, and internally she was in violent conflict between federal and state governments upon the question of universal service in a defensive militia. Next came the Great Alliance of Eastern Asia, a close-knit coalescence of China and Japan, advancing with rapid strides year by year to predominance in the world's affairs. Then the German alliance still struggled to achieve its dream of imperial expansion, and its imposition of the German language upon a forcibly united Europe. These were the three most spirited and aggressive powers in the world. Far more pacific was the British Empire, perilously scattered over the globe and distracted now by insurrectionary movements in Ireland and among all its subject races. It had given these subject races cigarettes, boots, bowler hats, cricket, race meetings, cheap revolvers, petroleum, the factory system of industry, halfpenny newspapers in both English and the vernacular, inexpensive university degrees, motor bicycles, and electric trams. It had produced a considerable literature expressing contempt for the subject races, and rendered it freely accessible to them, and it had been content to believe that nothing would result from these stimulants, because somebody once wrote the immemorial East, and also in the inspired words of Kipling, East is East, and Vest is Vest, and never the twain shall meet. Instead of which, Egypt, India, and the subject countries generally had produced new generations in a state of passionate indignation and the utmost energy, activity, and modernity. The governing class in Great Britain was slowly adapting itself to a new conception of the subject races as waking peoples and finding its efforts to keep the empire together under these strains and changing ideas greatly impeded by the entirely sporting spirit with which Bert Smallways, at home, by the million, cast his vote, and by the tendency of his more highly colored equivalents to be disrespectful to irascible officials. Their impertinence was excessive. It was no mere stone-throwing and shouting. They would quote Burns at them, and Mill, and Darwin, and confute them in arguments. Even more pacific than the British Empire were France and its allies, the Latin powers, heavily armed states indeed, but reluctant warriors, and in many ways socially and politically leading Western civilization. Russia was a pacific power perforce, divided within itself, torn between revolutionaries and reactionaries who were equally incapable of social reconstruction, and so sinking towards a tragic disorder of chronic political vendetta. Wedged in among these portentous larger bulks, swayed and threatened by them, the smaller states of the world maintained a precarious independence, each keeping itself armed as dangerously as its utmost ability could contrive. So it came about that in every country a great and growing body of energetic and inventive men was busied either for offensive or defensive ends in elaborating the apparatus of war until the accumulating tensions should reach the breaking point. Each power sought to keep its preparations secret, to hold new weapons in reserve, to anticipate and learn the preparations of its rivals. The feeling of danger from fresh discoveries affected the patriotic imagination of every people in the world. Now, it was rumored, the British had an overwhelming gun, 
now the French an invincible rifle, now the Japanese a new explosive, now the Americans a submarine that would drive every ironclad from the seas. Each time there would be a war panic. The strength and heart of the nations was given to the thought of war, and yet the mass of their citizens was a teeming democracy as heedless of and unfitted for fighting, mentally, morally, physically, as any population has ever been, or, one ventures to add, could ever be. That was the paradox of the time. It was a period altogether unique in the world's history. The apparatus of warfare, the art and method of fighting, changed absolutely every dozen years in a stupendous progress toward perfection, and people grew less and less warlike, and there was no war. And then at last it came. It came as a surprise to all the world, because its real causes were hidden. Relations were strained between Germany and the United States because of the intense exasperation of a tariff conflict and the ambiguous attitude of the former power towards the Monroe Doctrine, and they were strained between the United States and Japan because of the perennial citizenship question. But in both cases, these were standing causes of offense. The real deciding cause, it is now known, was the perfecting of the Forgeheim engine by Germany and the consequent possibility of a rapid and entirely practicable airship. At that time, Germany was by far the most efficient power in the world, better organized for swift and secret action, better equipped with the resources of modern science, and with her official and administrative classes at a higher level of education and training. These things she knew, and she exaggerated that knowledge to the pitch of contempt for the secret counsels of her neighbors, it may be that with the habit of self-confidence her spying upon them had grown less thorough moreover she had a tradition of unsentimental and unscrupulous action that vitiated her international outlook profoundly with the coming of these new weapons her collective intelligence thrilled with the sense that now her moment had come once again in the history of progress it seemed she held a decisive weapon now she might strike and conquer before the others had anything but experiments in the air. Particularly, she must strike America, swiftly, because there, if anywhere, lay the chance of an aerial rival. It was known that America possessed a flying machine of considerable practical value, developed out of the right model, but it was not supposed that the Washington's War Office had made any wholesale attempts to create an aerial navy. It was necessary to strike before they could do so. France had a fleet of slow navigables, several dating from 1908, that could make no possible headway against the new type. They had been built solely for reconnoitering purposes on the eastern frontier. They were mostly too small to carry more than a couple of dozen men, without arms or provisions, and not one could do forty miles an hour. Great Britain, it seemed, in an excess of meanness, temporized and wrangled with the imperial-spirited Butteridge and his extraordinary invention. That also was not in play, and could not be for some months at the earliest. From Asia there came no sign. The Germans explained this by saying the yellow peoples were without invention. No other competitor was worth considering. Now or never, said the Germans, now or never we may seize the air, as once the British seized the seas while all the other powers are still experimenting. Swift and systematic and secret were their preparations, and their plan most excellent. 
So far as their knowledge went, America was the only dangerous possibility. America, which was also now the leading trade rival of Germany and one of the chief barriers to her imperial expansion. So at once they would strike at America. They would fling a great force across the Atlantic heavens and bear America down unwarned and unprepared. Altogether, it was a well-imagined and most hopeful and spirited enterprise having regard to the information in the possession of the German government. The chances of it being a successful surprise were very great. The airship and the flying machine were very different things from ironclads, which take a couple of years to build. Given hands, given plant, they could be made innumerably in a few weeks. Once the needful parks and foundries were organized, airships and drachenflieger could be poured into the sky. Indeed, when the time came, they did pour into the sky like, as a bitter French writer put it, flies roused from filth. The attack upon America was to be the first move in this tremendous game, but no sooner had it started than instantly the aeronautic parks were to proceed to put together and inflate the second fleet which was to dominate Europe and maneuver significantly over London, Paris, Rome, St. Petersburg, or wherever else its moral effect was required. A world surprise it was to be, no less a world conquest and it is wonderful how near the calmly adventurous minds that planned it came to succeeding in their colossal design. Von Sternberg was the Moltke of this war in the air, but it was the curious hard romanticism of Prince Karl Albert that won over the hesitating emperor to the scheme. Prince Karl Albert was indeed the central figure of the world drama. He was the darling of the imperialist spirit in Germany, and the ideal of the new aristocratic feeling the new chivalry as it was called that followed the overthrow of socialism through its internal divisions and lack of discipline and the concentration of wealth in the hands of a few great families he was compared by obsequious flatterers to the black prince to alcibiades to the young caesar to many he seemed nietzsche's overman revealed he was big and blond and virile and splendidly non-moral the first great feat that startled Europe, and almost brought about a new Trojan War, was his abduction of the Princess Helena of Norway and his blank refusal to marry her. Then followed his marriage with Gretchen Crass, a Swiss girl of peerless beauty. Then came the gallant rescue, which almost cost him his life, of three drowning sailors whose boat had upset in the sea near Heligoland. For that and his victory over the American yacht Defender, CCI, the Emperor forgave him and placed him in control of the new aeronautic arm of the German forces. This he developed with marvelous energy and ability, being resolved, as he said, to give to Germany land and sea and sky. The national passion for aggression found in him its supreme exponent and achieved through him its realization in this astounding war. But his fascination was more than national. All over the world, his ruthless strength dominated minds as the Napoleonic legend had dominated minds. Englishmen turned in disgust from the slow, complex, civilized methods of their national politics to this uncompromising, forceful figure. Frenchmen believed in him. Poems were written to him in American. He made the war. Quite equally, with the rest of the world, the general German population was taken by surprise by the swift vigor of the imperial government. 
a considerable literature of military forecasts, beginners as early as 1906 with Rudolf Martin, the author not merely of a brilliant book of anticipations, but of a proverb, The Future of Germany Lies in the Air, had, however, partially prepared the German imagination for some such enterprise. Part 2 of all these world forces and gigantic designs, Bert Smallways knew nothing until he found himself in the very focus of it all and gaped down amazed on the spectacle of that giant herd of airships. Each one seemed as long as the Strand, and as big about as Trafalgar Square. Some must have been a third of a mile in length. He had never before seen anything so vast and disciplined as this tremendous pack. For the first time in his life, he really had an intimation of the extraordinary and quite important things of which a contemporary may go in ignorance. He had always clung to the illusion that Germans were fat, absurd men, who smoked china pipes, and were addicted to knowledge and horseflesh and sauerkraut and indigestible things generally. His bird's-eye view was quite transitory. He ducked at the first shot, and directly his balloon began to drop. His mind ran confusedly upon how he might explain himself, and whether he should pretend to be Butteridge or not. Oh, Lord, he groaned, in an agony of indecision. Then his eye caught his sandals, and he felt a spasm of self-disgust. They'll think I'm a bloomin' idiot, he said. And then it was he rose up desperately and threw over the sandbag and provoked the second and third shots. It flashed into his head as he cowered in the bottom of the car that he might avoid all sorts of disagreeable and complicated explanations by pretending to be mad. That was his last idea before the airships seemed to rush up about him as if to look at him, and his car hit the ground and bounded and pitched him out on his head. He awoke to find himself famous, and to hear a voice crying, Booterage! Ja! Ja, Herr Booterage! Selbst! He was lying on a little patch of grass beside one of the main avenues of the aeronautic park. The airships receded down a great vista, an immense perspective, and the blunt prow of each was adorned with a black eagle of a hundred feet or so spread. Down the other side of the avenue ran a series of gas generators, and big hose pipes trailed everywhere across the intervening space. Close at hand was his now nearly deflated balloon, and the car on its side looking minutely small, a mere broken toy, a shriveled bubble, in contrast with the gigantic bulk of the nearer airship. This he saw almost end-on, rising like a cliff and sloping forward towards its fellow on the other side, so as to overshadow the alley between them. There was a crowd of excited people about him, big men mostly in tight uniforms. Everybody was talking, and several were shouting, in German. He knew that because they splashed and aspirated sounds like startled kittens. Only one phrase repeated again and again could be recognized, the name of Herr Buterage. Gollies, said Bert, they've spotted it. Besser, said someone, and some rapid German followed. He perceived that close at hand was a field telephone, and that a tall officer in blue was talking thereat about him. Another stood close beside him with a portfolio of drawings and photographs in his hand. They looked around at him. Do you speak German, Herr Butterage? Bert decided that he had better be dazed. He did his best to seem thoroughly dazed. 
"'Where am I?' he asked. Volubility prevailed. "'Der Prinz!' was mentioned. A bugle sounded far away, and its call was taken up by one nearer, and then by one close at hand. This seemed to increase the excitement greatly. A monorail car bumbled past. The telephone bell rang passionately, and the tall officer seemed to engage in a heated altercation. Then he approached the group about Bert, calling out something about Mitbringen. An earnest-faced, emaciated man with a white moustache appealed to Bert. "'Herr Butterage, sir, we are just to start.' "'Where am I?' Bert repeated. Someone shook him by the other shoulder. "'Are you Herr Butterage?' he asked. "'Herr Butterage, we are just to start,' repeated the white moustache, and then helplessly, "'What is the goot? What can we do?' The officer from the telephone repeated his sentence about Der Prinz and Mitbringen. The man with the moustache stared for a moment, grasped an idea, and became violently energetic, stood up and bawled directions at unseen people. Questions were asked, and the doctor at Bert's side answered, "'Yah! Yah!' several times, also something about cough. With a certain urgency, he got Bert rather unwillingly to his feet. Two huge soldiers in grey advanced upon Bert and seized hold of him. Ulo said Bert, startled. "'What's up?' "'It is all right,' the doctor explained. "'They are to carry you.' "'Where?' asked Bert, unanswered. "'Put your arms around their halls, round them.' "'Yes, but where?' "'Hold tight.' Before Bert could decide to say anything more, he was whisked up by the two soldiers. They joined hands to seat him, and his arms were put about their necks. "'Vorwärts!' Someone ran before him with the portfolio, and he was borne rapidly along the broad avenue between the gas generators and the airships. Rapidly, and on the whole smoothly, except that once or twice his bearers stumbled over hose-pipes and nearly let him down. He was wearing Mr. Butteridge's alpine cap, and his little shoulders were in Mr. Butteridge's fur-lined overcoat, and he had responded to Mr. Butteridge's name. The sandals dangled helplessly. Gaw! Everybody seemed in a devil of a hurry. Why? He was carried joggling and gaping through the twilight, marveling beyond measure. The systematic arrangement of wide convenient spaces, the quantities of business-like soldiers everywhere, the occasional neat piles of material, the ubiquitous monorail lines, and the towering ship-like hulls about him, reminded him a little of impressions he had got as a boy on a visit to Woolwich Dockyard. The whole camp reflected the colossal power of modern science that had created it. A peculiar strangeness was produced by the lowness of the electric light which lay upon the ground, casting all shadows upwards and making a grotesque shadow figure of himself and his bearers on the airship sides, fusing all three of them into a monstrous animal with attenuated legs and an immense fan-like humped body. The lights were on the ground because, as far as possible, all poles and standards had been dispensed with to prevent complications when the airships rose. It was deep twilight now, a tranquil, blue-skied evening. Everything rose out from the splashes of light upon the ground into dim, translucent, tall masses. Within the cavities of the airships, small, inspecting lamps glowed like cloud-veiled stars, and made them seem marvelously unsubstantial. 
Each airship had its name in black letters, on white, on either flank, and forward the Imperial Eagle sprawled, an overwhelming bird in the dimness. Bugles sounded. Monorail cars of quiet soldiers slithered burbling by. The cabins under the heads of the airships were being lit up. Doors opened in them and revealed padded passages. Now and then a voice gave directions to workers indistinctly seen. There was a matter of sentinels, gangways, and a long narrow passage, a scramble over a disorder of baggage, and then Bert found himself lowered to the ground and standing in the doorway of a spacious cabin. It was perhaps ten feet square and eight high, furnished with crimson padding and aluminium. A tall, bird-like young man with a small head, a long nose, and very pale hair, with his hands full of things like shaving strops, boot trees, hairbrushes, and toilet tidies, was saying things about Gott and Thunder and Dumer Buterage as Bert entered. He was apparently an evicted occupant. Then he vanished, and Bert was lying back on a couch in the corner with a pillow under his head and the door of the cabin shut upon him. He was alone. Everybody had hurried out again, astonishingly. "'Gollies!' said Bert. "'What next?' He stared about him at the room. "'Butteridge, shall I try to keep it up, or shan't I?' The room he was in puzzled him. "'Tisn't a prison, and tisn't a norfus.' Then the old trouble came uppermost. "'I wish to Evan I adn't these silly sandals on!' he cried querulously to the universe. "'They give the whole blessed show away!' End of chapter 4, parts 1 and 2 Recording by William Tomko